Welcome to the Writing Time Podcast. I'm Blake Guthrie from the University of North Florida. I'm here today to continue our journeys through the collected works of Samuel Beckett and Anton Chekhov. Though, tonight, we'll be taking a detour off the main road that we've been heading down for the past few episodes. Not that I've had any particularly rigorous ends with this podcast, especially last week's episode, but I've ensured that each week looks at a primary text of Beckett or Chekhov, respectively. This week, however, is going to be a little bit different. Tonight, I want to look at some secondary texts surrounding the conversations we've been having of time, of writing, of memory, of life, of death, of human meaning, of theater, of literature, and so on. The purposes for this examination of secondary literature is to begin to build a vocabulary around the ways that we read Beckett and Chekhov, specifically ways to read them better. The first secondary text I'd like to turn us to this week, and perhaps the only one, we'll see what kind of time constraints happen here, is entitled Staring Sightlessly, Proust's Presence in Beckett's Absence, which is the first chapter of the book, Sights of Performance of Time and Memory by Dr. Clark Lunbury, the instructor who assembled the course which I am now taking and thus the arbiter of inspiration for this very podcast. I'm not going to be necessarily praising or blaming Lunbury's essay slash chapter here. I, I'm almost unconcerned with evaluating it so much as I am explaining some of the more useful bits in this essay. And I'm starting with him not because he's our professor, although that, that is certainly relevant, but because of the certain ways that he talks about time's passage, embodiment, and disappearance. So let's go through it. Lundbury's chapter suggests overall that time's story insists on being told that the body is a site of time's inscription, which Lunbury argues is the way a body thus marks time. Lunbury makes the distinction between time's telling and memory's performance, where memory can be interrupted by the facts of reality, a photograph perhaps. Lunbury writes of what Proust describes, or rather, Beckett describes Proust's writing as the cruel precision of the camera, an idea that photographs, bodies, its faces, and etc. are gesturing towards their own disappearance. So, for example, if you, if you think about the way, I guess, that social media works, and you have a Facebook profile picture, and that becomes enshrined as your own being in a way people recognize you by that image and you very consciously choose the image that other people see to represent you there's this idea that might come up a couple times in this podcast as inspired by dr lunbury which is that to or sorry to be seen is to exist to exist is to be seen and that's kind of what a social network photograph does and, and not specifically because Beckett and Proust were involved with photographs and and 
social media is certainly not the latter, but the precision, the cruel precision of a camera in Beckett's language to describe Proust, this idea that we, in our fixations, are as soon as we pin it down to film, we are already gesturing towards our own disappearance, death. Lunbury structures this chapter into two acts, one beginning with Beckett's Waiting for Godot and a discussion of the boots that plague the character Estragon in that play. The boots, according to Lunbury, are a very precise picture of pain. Pain, as Beckett has written elsewhere, is one of the only real things that we can be sure about. As the author John Green has said repeatedly, pain destroys language. Pain in Lunbury's writing, at least, is evidence of time's parabola extending. The second act of Lunbury's writings examines Proust's boots, an act which enables memory and enacts it. it. I mean, recall Lunbury writes memory's performance. And they take on, again, like in Waiting for Godot, a very precise picture of pain. As Lunbury continues, we see this Proustian grandmother become the representation of an intervening conclusion to a long life, which was already, always already, well underway in that initial scene with the removed boots. Yet the boots, and then subsequently the death of the grandmother in Proust, enabled the young man, Marcel, to better see what was right before his eyes the entire time. Time's passage. This state of reawakened grief according to Lunbury, illuminates the body bending as time's parabola extends. The character in Proust's novel, bending down to reach for his boot, produces an involuntary memory of his grandmother. And this involuntary memory, as distinguished from deliberate memory, is presented to be a kind of true memory. One forced, unique, veritable, single, unrepeatable memory. Act 3 examines time's corrosive invasion and encroaching mortality, specifically in Proust. Proust, according to Lunbury, is present at his own absence, seen by the camera, seen by time itself, as if buried alive by the burdensome weight of the moment's own oblivion. Those are Lunbury's words. Let me repeat. Proust, according to Lunbury, is present at his own absence, seen by the camera, seen by time itself, as if buried alive by the burdensome weight of the moment's own oblivion. If I can borrow and build off of Lunbury's interpretation here in his phrasing is the idea that the moment is itself an obliviating moment. So now in the very in, in terms of temporality, like the present in which I am forming these words, is itself an act of oblivion, for as soon as I have spoken them, they are gone. They're very luckily, or perhaps unluckily, recorded here, through this microphone, through the cable, into the DI box, into the laptop, into your ears. But it is itself an act of oblivion, even as I, perhaps contradictorily, record it and inscribe it and recreate it for the future. In the second book in Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, 
or as I prefer, In Search of Lost Time, different translations of the title, Lunbury employs the following. We never see the people who are dear to us, save in the animated system, the perpetual motion of our love for them, which, before allowing the images that their faces present to reach us, seizes them in its vortex and flings them back upon the idea that we have always had of them, makes them adhere to it, coincides with it. Every habitual glance is an act of necromancy. Each face that we love, a mirror of the past. This idea that every habitual glance is an act of necromancy is a rather haunting one. We see the body and we see simultaneously it conjure itself up as death's presentiment or previewing, indeed, as Lumberry writes, of death's rehearsal. So Beckett has written elsewhere, and, and this, this long block quote that Lunbury has employed in this first chapter is from Proust, so I'm surprised he didn't make the connection on his own, but I will go ahead and make it for Lunbury, which is to say that Samuel Beckett says, I want to believe in the trilogy, the first book specifically, habit is the great deadener. Habit is death, essentially. Habit creates death or being enslaved to habit, more accurately, is the path to death. If we think about that, and then this manifestation of Proust, every habitual glance is an act of necromancy, a mirror of the past. That calls everything we do into question. When we think, oh, I'll see you tomorrow, buddy, or I have to turn in this paper next week, or there goes my professor walking down the hallway. Each one of those moments is an act of necromancy. It's a bringing back to life of the future which has not happened yet. And at the same time, a bringing back to life a past that will never happen again. The body, the stage, light, constructed stories are vivid installations of time itself, a quietly dramatic space of lucid awareness. The body then becomes theater, a theater of disappearance. Here, Lunbury's own argument starts to take the shape beyond such deferences to Proust and Beckett. The idea underneath much of Lunbury's latter half of this chapter is that to be is to be seen, or as I unarticulately tried to reproduce earlier in the podcast uh, to exist is to be seen to be is to be seen conversely to not be seen is to be rendered abruptly absent and Lunbury threads Proust and Beckett together here to suggest that they have never been or have never seen but to see what it's now too late to see and that bears repeating because that it could be clumsy, the phrasing here. Together, Proust and Beckett, they have never seen or have never seen but to see what it's now too late to see. The vanishings, the moment of oblivion that happens now. And here Lunbury employs the writings of his own former professor Herbert Blau 
describing the indeterminacy of the perceptual event. Perception, in other words, gets in the way of reality. Our common notions of the body, the stage, the story, and time are, in a sense, blind. As Lunbury writes, this cataracting movement of disappearance will not reveal itself. And I love the metaphor here, the, the cataracting movement in regards to our, our blindness. These, this cataracting movement of disappearance, this always gestural direction towards death and disappearance forms itself a metaphorical cataract over our, once again, both literal and metaphorical, eyes. We will not be able to see that which has not disappeared, which is simultaneously disappearing always in every moment. I could stare at a body, in other words, four days straight, and perhaps not notice much aging, much difference. I would be bored to tears staring at a body for four days. But in this conception, through Beckett, through Proust, through Blau, through Lunbury, that's precisely what's going on, is this always decaying, always vanishing body. This, this always flexible to the evidence of time's mark body. Act four of Lunbury's chapter employs Adorno's idea of Beckett's mode of relentlessly concrete thought as a, quote, situation of inwardness still preserved in its gestural shell. Here, Lundberry acknowledges Beckett's historical debt to Proust, even delving into Deleuzian images of thought where one is forced to see the absence. We see the material moment of matter collapsing. As Lundberry writes, there, the dense gravity of time's inescapable pull unfolds just prior to what Beckett characterizes as the mystic experience, the sacred action. As in Godot, as in Proust, there is a vulgarity of a plausible concatenation, a series of interconnected things and events. Lunbury transitions here into a discussion of the morbid phenomenon of the body, seen necromantically now as theater, where he writes, remains the remains of the living and loved body dead and dying in front of our eyes, offering as much as it does a form of posthumous perception of disappearance and the mystery of the body's vanishing. Moving back to Deleuze, Lunbury cites how Proust's sense of time in his novels becomes sensuous, which, hidden by sensation, nothingness dawns. Lunbury borrows from the language of astrophysics to discuss the event horizon of the corporeal gesture, which appears at times dilation, in which there is nothing, pardon me, in which there is the slowing of the flow of time. In fact, in this event horizon, nothing emerges. And that uh, whether that's Sartre's nothingness or nothingness proper or nothing with a capital N, those distinctions remain to be seen in Lunbury's essay. The afterimage of absence in Lunbury's words are imprinted like an undeveloped, undevelopable photographic negative onto the eye. As Lunbury concludes, held still at the, at the sight of time, the very sight of time, 
the cruel precisions of Beckett's earlier described camera are no longer offering up a printable picture, a representable return to things past. What Beckett was to characterize as a contradiction between presence and irremediable obliteration that he found intolerable. Instead, what is offered and what faintly intolerably remains for Beckett is a performable temporal image that is alive. And so he wraps up the opening chapter to his book. How all this relates back to Beckett specifically, if, if that's not clear on his own, but also Chekhov. I think with the theme of writing time, there's, there's a couple things to be said here. As to Beckett and Chekhov, both authors share that distinction of writing consistently about time and memory, writing itself of life and death, of human meaning, of theater, of literature, and so on. And in terms of the way that Lunbury synthesizes these two authors, Beckett and Proust, as opposed to Beckett and Chekhov, as he has done with this course, there is still the common ground of time's inscription. There's also a very consistent focus on the body as the site of time's inscription. Both in Chekhov and in Beckett, for different reasons. For example, Chekhov is a doctor, and he views both his own body and the bodies of his patients throughout varying short stories and plays as sites of time's telling, time's inscription. As far as Beckett is concerned, that is certainly the case in his trilogy and his short prose with the tramps, with the decrepit cripples who do nothing but just basically crap their pants all the time and crawl around forests and so forth. Lundbury's distinction between time's telling and memory's performance is also really relevant to the rest of these stories because time is both told literally, fictionally, figuratively, and deceptively in their stories, but memory is also a performance. For example, the, the story's escaping me now, but there there's uh, I, um, a Chekhov short story, which it's five parts, and we see a man at these five parts through his life, and he falls in love with this girl named Kitty, and she goes away to be an artist, and she comes back, and she finally falls for him after he had confessed his love for her, and she stood him up years prior, and he's grown bitter and resentful and fat and angry and antisocial, and his, his memory performs what she used to be like and then gets interrupted by its own performance because she doesn't meet up with what it, it, it wants her to be like and, and vice versa she performs the memory of this man who was wooing her and courting her when he now is irritated with her and thinks she's dumb and so forth, less attractive than she was. So I could go on there, but memory's performance and time's telling are really interesting distinctions to bring to the table of our conversation, and perhaps we'll employ those further. There's also this idea of what Beckett describes as Proust's cruel precision of the camera, this idea that photographs, bodies, faces are always gesturing towards their own disappearance we'll have to look out for photographs and gestures towards disappearance throughout the rest of this podcast. A couple other things. Pain destroys language. We'll have to keep an eye out for pain. That's my own formulation here, but in the context of Lunbury's essay, this was evoked. 
specifically in relation to Beckett in the trilogy when he talks about pain being the only certainty. I don't think that there's much to be said about Proust's boots and Beckett's boots here. I actually don't think that they're, they're sites of interesting literary analysis and symbolism personally. Of course, that's a narrow conception. But I would skip over that bulk of Lunbury's essay and, and delve back into the examinations of time, memory, and, and the passage of life. To say that Proust is present at his own absence is something that's really f peculiar, specifically thinking of Beckett's Waiting for Godot or Chekhov's The Seagull or even a better example, The Three Sisters. There's always this absence or rather a presence of absence, not a presence of his own absence, of course, which is also there. But in Three Sisters, for example, Moscow is very presently absent. And that's the kind of thing. And Godot in Waiting for Godot is very presently absent. These kinds of ideas are perfectly formulaic f in terms of reading these authors better. Moving on just a little further before we, we wrap up this week is this idea of Delusian images of thought, because there's so many images throughout Chekhov and Beckett that are, in fact, anti-images, or maybe more specifically, an image of an image. So that that's just to say we see an image of a tree in Godot, but the image of the tree is rather an image of an image of a tree. It's not a symbolic tree. It, it is a symbol of a symbol. This kind of thing comes up much throughout these two authors and I and I think that may, maybe the appropriate Chekhov example would be the seagull the seagull as appearing in the play the seagull is acknowledged a couple times and four or five times throughout the play where it's oh there's a, a seagull and it should be a symbol of something and then we never get an answer and then oh it's a dead seagull and then oh it's a stuffed seagull and it just continues to get more ridiculous and nothing ever happens and we never get concrete meaning and of course there is literary criticism and theatrical criticism throughout the years that tries to speculate as to what the sequel means, but having not read most of that, I can only say, well, what the hell does it mean? And there, there's more to be said, but we, we've already run almost half an hour here, and I'm trying to cut down and be a little more precise and a little more uh, full of meat and a little bit less of editing and rambling. And definitely la less rapping. That was a very mixed slash negative response, and rightly so. I had a few drinks last time we recorded. But before we, we depart and I leave you into the void, we're going to have to do what we always do here at the Writing Time Podcast, where I leave us with a saying in Stoicism, a philosophy that is always vitally aware of time and its implications for our own lives and impending mortality. Today's quote comes from Epictetus's Discourses. Don't you know life is like a military campaign? One must serve or watch, another in reconnaissance, another on the front line. So it is for each of us. Each person's life is a kind of battle, and a long and varied one too. You must keep watch like a soldier and do everything commanded. You have been stationed in a key post, not some lowly place, and not for a short time, but for life. So thinking about what Epictetus has to say, life is essentially a battlefield. And we're wondering about, throughout the rest of this podcast, about the body as a site of disappearance. 
disappearance to death. Life is a continuous struggle against death. If you're not growing, you're dying, as that is, is commonly said. So if life, according to Epictetus, is like a military campaign, then one must serve on watch. Another in reconnaissance, another on the front line. Everyone must do their duty. Everyone must play their part. Each character written by Beckett and Chekhov, each character that we enact every day and perform, both in terms of our bodies, but also in terms of our personalities and our, and our identities, they are sites of disappearance. And though we can hold on to them, and we will hold on to them with our, our dying breath, they are always evidence of time's inscription. You may have been stationed in a key post, writes Epictetus, and not for a short time, but for life. How are we going to use our bodies to, to station them at key posts? It's a lot to think about. But for now, until next time, I'm Blake Guthrie, your host, as always. You've been listening to the Writing Time Podcast. Stay curious.